Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Suhe Vega. She's an associate professor of women and gender studies and a faculty member in the School of Trans-Border Studies and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. Her research explores the everyday experiences of Latinas and Latinos in the U.S. Suhe Vega uses a combination of oral histories, archives, and ethnographic research to learn more about how Latinas and Latinos are striving to belong in so-called new or non-traditional locations, like, for example, Indiana. Dr. Vega's book, Latino Heartland of Borders and Belonging in the Midwest, chronicles a sort of dialogue between Mexican and non-Mexican Hoosiers as they both come to terms with living in the same communal space. Recently, Suhe Vega was on the IU campus as a guest of the Mexico Remixed Festival. While she was here, she came to the WFIU studios for a conversation with Dr. Sylvia Martinez of IU Bloomington's Latino Studies program. Welcome, Dr. Suhe Vega. <laughs> I'm really excited that you're here on campus. And I want to go ahead and just jump right into talking about your book for a little bit. Sure. So your book, Latino Heartland of Borders and Belonging in the Midwest, focuses on non-traditional areas of settlement or new destinations for Latino populations, areas such as the Midwest, but particularly the greater Lafayette area in Indiana. And so I wanted to start by asking you, how did the inspiration for this research project come about? Yeah, so what's important is that I am actually not from the Midwest. And so I am a Latina Chicana, but I'm not from the Midwest. I was born and raised in California, moved to Texas, and I happen to be driving through the Midwest looking for possible graduate programs. I am a first-generation McNair student, so that means that nobody else in my family has graduated from college and certainly hadn't gone to grad school. So with the McNair program, they offered us some funding to maybe check out some graduate programs. I'm an anthropology student, so there were several that was up in the Midwest. So we decided to take a road trip, me and my partner at the time. I'm now husband. Our road trip included kind of going up from Texas, stopping in Iowa, Iowa City, maybe another school in Illinois, Chicago, Indiana, and then coming back around. And I remember very distinctly going to Iowa City. So this is not part of the Indiana connection, but in Iowa City, I was waiting to go to meet with a professor to hopefully apply to their program. And there was some lag in time, so I had to grab some lunch, and I grabbed a burrito. And I go to this burrito shop across the street from campus, and here I am, Chicana from California, with Texas experiences, and I hear Spanish. And I'm like, what? Where's the Spanish coming from? And being the anthropologist that I was or trying to be, I immediately asked the dudes like across the counter, I said, and in Spanish, what are you doing here? Like, what? How? How is this? Where'd you like? Where are you Mexican? And I, I was just beside myself. And so he immediately laughed and responded with, yeah, you know, we've been here for a while and you wouldn't believe how many of us are here in Iowa. And we just started chatting. And I remember that moment was a linchpin into me wanting to do more work in the Midwest because I felt a bit of shame, embarrassment maybe, and angry that I didn't know about these communities up here. I had read about lots of research done in California, 
some in Texas, but none in the Midwest. So I was a little angry (laughs) and just felt like that's not fair that their stories don't get published and don't get told and read about in classes. And so that was where the Midwest connection started. I eventually got in and got funding and was able to go to the University of Illinois Champaign. But at the moment, the economy had shifted in Champaign and actually the Latino population was decreasing. So I knew that I could do it there, but it just wouldn't have the same impact or the population was leaving instead of forming. And now that's different. Now they're growing, but it wasn't there. So going back to my partner, who again now is my husband, um, he went to Purdue University and we had a long distance relationship. I drove back and forth. He drove back and forth. And in those drives, I came to see bakeries, panaderias, grocery stores, all in Lafayette. And I was just, again, bewildered. Where is this coming from? Like how the community's here, they're investing in their businesses, they're out and about. Like this is just, again, why hadn't I ever known? So that's where it began. And obviously with every time I visited, I got to know business owners and families And I thought it's a shame that no one's ever made sure that their stories are told. So that's where my commitment is, to make sure that theirs and stories like theirs make it to the mainstream and people get a chance to appreciate all the struggles as well as all the benefits of living in these kind of smaller communities. So the focus in the greater Lafayette area was simply a function of demographics, right? Uh, That's one of the questions I had since you were a PhD student at Urbana-Champaign why the greater Lafayette area. So it was demographics. There was a larger population there. It was also, at the time, I was interested in entrepreneurship and the way that Latino businesses reinvested into the Rust Belt, right? The places where people have closed shops and abandoned strip malls. That was my interest, is to look at the landscape, look at the geography, the cultural geography of a space and how it's being re-emphasized, reinvigorated, with Latino businesses, and that's what was there everywhere. That's where I decided to really focus my work and was on Lafayette's, originally on the entrepreneurs. It didn't go that way. <laughs> Is that why you chose a PhD program in the Midwest as opposed to somewhere else as a Chicana from right. Los Angeles? No. <laughs> I want to say yes, but no. I think that if I'd gone... So there was other programs I was accepted to it, for me as a first-generation student, it came down to funding. It came down to where I was offered a better fellowship that would actually last. I was offered fellowships in other institutions in California. There was no way I could afford to live in California, even with a scholarship or a fellowship. So I just, I couldn't take it. But from the Iowa City encounter, that was an undergraduate, right? I was still before graduation. I knew that that was going to be my goal. If I ended up in Santa Cruz, California, I still wanted that to be the community or a community in the Midwest, a quote-unquote non-traditionally settling community, a community that people don't recognize. And in part that came from the fact that my parents are undocumented or were undocumented, my family was undocumented, and whenever I read scholarship, I never felt like I read their stories. Like their stories weren't represented, other stories were represented, but I never felt my tia was in the room when they were doing interviews. And if I couldn't interview my own tia, I wanted to make sure their stories were somehow still part of my emphasis. So the Midwest was just because it was the most affordable place for me to live. And I think, honestly, I share that in common with the participants 
because that's why they moved here. They moved here because it was inexpensive to live when compared to places like Southern California. There are jobs around. It's stable. So I think that there's a parallel between why I chose Illinois and why the communities I research choose the Midwest. Your argument in the book is that despite this resurgent in anti-immigrant discourse during the early 2000s, more specifically 2005, 2006, the Latino community in Indiana was able to craft a sense of belonging, mm-hmm. right? They were able to call Indiana home. And so in what ways do they do so? And how does your work challenge these traditional notions of belonging and citizenship? Home and belonging is really defined by people themselves, right? And even the same participants that at one point I might have asked, do you feel like you belong? And they would have said yes. On other days of the week, they might say no. I think it really depends on the climate and and what's going on politically, what's going on locally. So in other words, home is what you make of it. And the way I was able to see the way that they made home is people started purchasing houses, which is often the social science kind of, are they purchasing houses? Are they learning the language? Are they intermarrying, right? (laughs) And so they were purchasing houses, but it wasn't just the houses. It was religious events. It was going with their children to school, having their children participate in sports and, and really get a sense for, look, we're here already. This is our home. This isn't our only home. They still have homes or belonging in Latin America and Mexico and other parts. But we're going to make it work. We're going to make it work and we're going to make our happiness here. And you use the idea of ethnic belonging. You have a very specific definition of this, and you talk about how it's different from cultural citizenship. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that difference? So inspired by, I would say, (laughs) inspired by cultural citizenship. When I was being trained as an anthropologist, this notion of cultural citizenship was very much in the lexicon and the conversations and the scholarship. And in particular, there's a book that was very influential, Latino cultural citizenship which I adored. I devoured, you know, front cover to back cover, notes and everything. But here again, I felt like my tia, my mom wasn't represented. And it wasn't, um, there wasn't any fault with the book. It was just that what they were representing was actual existing organizations, which is amazing work to do, right? To recognize community organizations that are working hard despite horrible circumstances and low budgets and still being activists. But what about those families that can't be activists, that work 60 hours a week, that are struggling to put food on the table, they get home exhausted, they might or might not help the kid out with their homework because it's that just intense weekly schedule. And I thought, well, okay, so what of those? What of those Latino, Latina, Latinx populations that can't be active, can't form these amazing organizations, where are they? And do they still somehow enact belonging, enact a kind of citizenship that may not be obvious, but it's there? So ethnic belonging then becomes a way for me to see that, to see how there are ways to claim space, to claim that this is our town too, and we practice like every other citizen does here. We're not that much different. We might have different ways of acting, but we have our ways of ethnically belonging, of saying that we belong here, but we also have an ethnic background that we practice every day, and those two aren't mutually exclusive. 
And you also reference quite a few times in the book about your participants and how they're crafting this ethnic belonging, that the personal becomes political, that these everyday practices is how they uh, invoke belonging. You've mentioned, right, that you're a child of once undocumented immigrants. So is this a personal and political project for you? And in what ways? Absolutely. I make no excuses for that. And I start off my prologue. And throughout, I place myself in there. Not too much, right? I, I don't want to make this an anthropology of me. But I do want to make sure that I'm present because it affects the way that I collect research. But also, it recognizes everybody has a subject position. Everyone has a bias that they're bringing to the table. And so absolutely, this was a personal project for me. Now, I do not have the experience of having family come to the Midwest, living here, or long-term staying here. Now I find myself in Arizona. So I recognize the differences, and I think that's important. But there's a lot of parallels, too. As I said, I moved to the Midwest. I didn't know how to dress, uh, how to find good boots, you know. And so There's those experiences that I wondered how Latino families kind of deal with that in terms of them coming from a different climate, them coming from a different cultural environment, especially in the winters. You know, we're very much a social community. I think of Mexico and how if you walk from one block to the next block, you're going to say hi to six different people, you know, and everybody's saying hi to you or hugs and kisses on the cheek. And and we're just that kind of personality often. And If you're here in the winter and it's six months out of the year, you're just kind of inside, it can affect you in a different way if you're from that kind of community. So I I felt that, but obviously at a distance because I was a student. But here again, as I mentioned earlier, my parents were undocumented. My family was undocumented. We moved from Mexico and then from California to Texas. So I am familiar with that story of moving, starting all over, making new friends, trying to make home while missing the other So it was definitely personal. I got to know some of the individuals. I still have friendships with them to this day. They're participants in the research, yes, but they're friends as well. So I feel like I owe it to the community to maintain a personal investment in what I'm saying. I can't be this distant observer. I don't want to be a distant observer. This isn't lab rats in a maze. These are human beings like me. And I think, I always think, What if people were interviewing me? What if people were interviewing my mom, my dad? How would I want to represent them, but also to respect them in such a way that makes it a very personable project? So have you shared the book with your community, your participants? So it was released in the summer of 2015. And that summer, I went back to Lafayette. We went for Fourth of July weekend, I remember, because we saw the fireworks down in a particular field in Lafayette. And I did. I went around and, you know, the press gives you certain copies. And I kept one copy for myself, one copy for my mom. And then I went around distributing the rest of the copies to folks. I stopped by the mayor's office in Lafayette and tried to give it to his office because I feel like it's necessary for obviously the politicians and the local leaders to have this. I don't know that it got to his hands, but I hope that one day I can give it to him in his hands. (laughs) And do you plan to go back to maybe a follow-up study or? So I, let's see, 2006 was the full year that I was living there. I started living there in 2005, but then the field work was 2006. We left in 2007. Since then, I went back like every two years. I'd keep going back to follow-up interviews, kind of keep in touch with people. Since the book's been out, I went back one time. And now I'm thinking of actually going back in the next year or so because I have so much 
newspapers, documents, you know, ephemera, they call them in the archives, that I certainly don't want to keep. It's not mine to keep. I've just talked to somebody at the Indiana Historical Society to hold the collection there. In my ideal world, it'd be held in Lafayette. Unfortunately, Lafayette archives and collections, uh, Tippecanoe County, have not been stable enough to hold and preserve archives in the way that they need to be preserved, or rather have access to the public. I think we might, maybe in the next year or so, come back and then like, do a celebration, invite participants to come to Indy, or rather have the Historical Society go to Lafayette and have an event, have another public reading, and then have like a the collection is now ready for students to to look through or whatnot. So yeah. I can imagine it'd be a great resource for yeah. young people, it's, high school students, college students. Yeah, to go through in a sense because I can't do everything, right? We can't there's so many stories and tales that I wish I could put in the book, but there's you can't put it all in there. But secondly, we shouldn't. One person should never be in charge of the community story. I'm excited for the potential of other students, young students, older students, graduate students, to have access to it, or even the children or grandchildren of the people that were interviewed. As an education scholar, right, that seems exciting to me because so many young Latinx students don't know their own history, and that'd be so powerful, right? right? Or even to encourage. So obviously, I only did Lafayette. There, there's Frankfurt. There's Goshen. There's places down here in southern Indiana. To encourage them to collect their own communities' history too would be great. My next question is about the theoretical framing that you used in the book. And as someone who teaches a Latinas in the U.S. class, it caught my eye. Right. So you use Gloria Anzaldúa's work. So you use the notion of borderlands, border theory. Yeah. Right. So can you briefly describe? Uh, what this framework is yes. <laughs> and then why it was so useful right. in studying how Indiana Hoosiers have yeah. crafted ethnic belonging. Absolutely. So Gloria Anzaldúa is just an amazing theorist. She's passed on, and I think the gifts that she's giving us are multiplied. You know, I think people keep finding new interest in her work, which is fantastic. Interestingly enough, she does have an Indiana connection. And in the introduction to her book, Borderlands La Frontera, she makes reference to having come and worked for the um, farm workers. She worked within the education department that helped farm workers' children. She was in Indiana, and it says something about Indiana, and I just jumped out of my seat when I first <laughs> read that. And I said, see, there's an Anzaldúa connection. Mm-hmm. So Anzaldúa makes a case that in Texas in particular, where she's familiar with, she talks about the borderlands as this space where, for her, Mexico and the U.S. come together and collide. So those are two really oppositional words, but they fit in what she's saying. She talks about the borderlands, that space that overlaps between cultures and communities and countries, as an herida abierta, an open wound that bleeds. But she also talks about transcending the border and being able to cross and gain from both sides and navigating and negotiating that experience. And so she's able to talk about the borderlands and the border experience through very complicated and real and raw terms that allow for the violence to happen. We're not talking about the cartel violence. We're talking about violence from being Mexican-American on the U.S. side and being told you can't speak Spanish, going to the Mexico side and being told you're not Mexican enough. Those are like emotional strikes and attacks on one's identity and being 
And so she talks about the rawness of it, right? The herida abierta, the open wound. But she also says she gained so much from having those exchanges, having the influences of both Mexico and the U.S. and how those two together shaped who she was, the beauty of her experience. So she does not allow for one or the other. In a very feminist way, she does a both and approach, right? It is both violent and beautiful. And so I use that in Indiana because I felt like the borderlands isn't just the U.S.-Mexico border. It's not just a geography, but it's also the encounter of communities. And especially in Indiana, that was certainly the case where you have communities coming into contact who may not understand each other, who may not agree, but what happens when they have that contact? Is it always an open wound? Is it always violent? Or can it be negotiated and complementary? And so I felt like a lot of that was happening. It was both and in Lafayette. Suhe Vega, author of Latino Heartland of Borders and Belonging in the Midwest. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Suhe Vega is speaking with Sylvia Martinez, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies and Latino Studies at IU Bloomington. You talk a lot about living without borders, right? Mm. So what does it mean for Latino Hoosiers to live sin fronteras, right, or without borders? Right. Well, I think the physicality of it, the physicality of being able to visit your grandmother when she's dying. It's not just a financial thing, but it's the ability to cross sin fronteras, to be able to navigate the geopolitical spaces and borders that we've created to bar one community from existing in the other, that make it impossible for many families to go back to one of their homes, Mexico, let's say, or El Salvador for another. And so we have to think about that as a mindset. Now, granted, yes, of course, there are issues that we have to consider in terms of protecting the borders and protecting the nation. But I think that those words get thrown around and highly politicized in such a way that's so callous that folks don't realize the repercussions. They don't understand what the realities are. And sometimes they do and they don't care. I'm not here to change those minds. I think what we need to do is look at each other as humans and understand where our connections are. And that to deny a child their parent and access to a hug from their sibling because they're in detention is extremely inhumane and extremely unjustifiable. So to think about living sin fronteras means to think about the repercussions of fronteras to be mindful in the words of today of what happens when that wall goes up. It's not just a metaphorical wall. It's not just a political wall. But we have to be mindful of what happens to communities and within ourselves when those walls go up and we stop thinking each other as human, viable individuals that we could actually have a friendship with, that could be our neighbors. I feel like in classes, that's the ultimate question, right? How do you break down those walls to empathize with others, right? In sociology. I did teach in sociology for a hot second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's a social distance scale 
that teaches us how do people envision each other as close or far apart depending on these different factors, nation, religion, race. And we think about that social distance has nothing to do with physical distance. There's this wonderful book also inspired by Gloria Anzaldúa called Where the World Ended by Daphne Birdall that talks about the Eastern and Western German experience and what happened when the Berlin Wall was taken down. And she talks about the difference between West Berliners and East Berliners and that even once the wall is taken down, and she was there doing field work at the time when this was happening, there was still a quote-unquote wall in our heads. We have to tear down the internal walls, the mental walls, the stuff that keeps us from seeing each other as human beings. That book is really good because it talks about these are folks that are families. Like there are families across the Berlin Wall that saw each other as completely different because of that wall. We have to tear apart the wall in our heads. I realize the book is about mostly um, undocumented Latinx population in the greater Lafayette area, but I can't help but also think about living without borders or these anti-immigrant sentiments. What does it mean for U.S.-born Latinos or Latinos with legal residency? And I bring this up because just recently I had a very painful experience here in Bloomington as I was trying to enjoy lunch with my son and someone made a point to speak very loudly about anti-immigrant sentiment. So I realized that this person wanted me to hear his rant. Yeah. And I think that's an aspect that we often forget that this has an impact even for U.S.-born Latinos, but then at the same time, I realize I hold privilege. Yeah. And it feels, I don't know, it feels weird to complain about it. But this also extends beyond right. those that are undocumented. I don't know. Oh, if absolutely. Want. I'm even thinking that scenario of your child, right? right? Your son. And I have a nine-year-old son. And I'm constantly thinking of the world that they're living in that is not the world I lived in. You know, we had news coverage here and there, major things happening, but not to the extent that they do and certainly not vocalized in public like this. So I think of you as an individual, but then also your child who has to hear it too, right? And how do our children have to deal with this? What's important, I think, with the book is that it's not... So yes, there are undocumented immigrants in there. But I think that I try to do like a mixed families approach. Mixed families recognizes that even one Latino family, and this is an exact scenario from Lafayette that I remember, dad might be a citizen, mom is undocumented, Mom's older children are citizens. Mom's younger children are undocumented, too. And so you have, even one family, multiple levels of documentation. You have undocumented, resident, and then citizen, all in one family. We have to come to terms with that, that we exist in mixed families often. With regards to the next generation, the folks that are citizens that have that privilege, I think that Lafayette has a lot of folks, too, that have been there for generations. In the history section, I talk about two brothers that came in the late 50s. Their children and their grandchildren, and now their great-grandchildren, are all living now in the Lafayette area. And what's important to note is that all the way down that line, during, say, the immigration rallies, even the grandchildren were siding with undocumented brethren or biceps, right? They were saying, look, this doesn't affect us individually. Obviously, we are citizens. We have 
status, but it affects us indirectly, either because we have family who aren't or because we don't appreciate the way that people are treated in the society and marked as non-human or a different level of human. And that doesn't always happen. In places like in Texas, we see where some Tejano communities that are U.S.-born, Mexican, distance themselves from immigrants, resist and reject their undocumented cousins and, and families and, and neighbors. But I think for here in Indiana, it's interesting because the state is small, like it's smaller. The communities are growing, but they're still small. So there's almost like the sense of you come for one of us, you come for us all, especially when there's major things happening around. So I think that there's an opportunity to coalesce and advocate for each other in a different way here than there would be maybe at other places. And I know that to be true because when I've talked about the book in California and Arizona, People often ask that, you know, well, weren't there tensions within the community? And I said, not really. You know, I had people that did interviews with me that were vocally Republican, said, I'm a GOP Republican Latino. I do not agree with this language and the way it's being used against my community. And I will defend them if I need to. And that was inspiring. And I think that tells you about the next generation that we're willing especially in places like Indiana, where there's not many of us anyway. We're willing to step up and say, no, in a sense, use our privilege to assert that that's not going to happen. To the point that I walk around in Arizona, it's Arizona, (laughs) but I walk around purposely speaking Spanish. Like, come, come with me with your anti-Spanish assaults and we'll see what happens, you know? And so do you think that's what it is in Indiana or other parts of the Midwest, is that the population is small, so that creates a sense of yeah, coming a, together? Yeah, yeah, a sense of defending each other, right? Yeah, but that also means that because the population is small, they're willing to navigate. They don't go out of their way to stick out, right? They want to be considered Indiana, like Hoosiers in a sense, but not having to deny or forget their language or their ethnicity. That's where ethnic belonging comes out of. They want to be able to belong. They want to be considered residents of Indiana because they contribute to Indiana. Economically, they contribute. They contribute by the housing industry. They certainly contribute, and they want that to be recognized, just not at the expense of them having to deny or degrade their ethnic identity. You alluded to history And one of my favorite chapters of the book is chapter two, titled Recuerdos de Lafayette, The Making and Forgetting of the Past in Central Indiana, which provides a historical account of uh, settlement of other racial or ethnic groups in the area. So can you tell us a little bit about this history? Because it was fascinating. I think that many of us know, many of us that live in Indiana, the Midwest, I no longer do, but those of us that do that the German population was very much a part of the building of Indiana. Indiana is part of what they call the German Triangle, which is a triangular settlement pattern of where German immigrants settled initially in this country. And one thing that I always thought was fascinating, and the more I did archival research and looked into the stories, the more I found this to be true, that the German immigrants that came in the 1800s had almost identical or parallel experiences as the Latinos do today. They came, they wanted to maintain their language. I talk about that in the book. 
there was a mother superior at one of the religious schools, and they wrote her a pretty uh, strong letter telling her, you will not send us a teacher that don't speak German. And for a Catholic to stand up to the mother superior, I think, is pretty telling. So Germans wanted to speak German. They were not ashamed of that. That didn't mean they didn't want their kids to speak English. That just meant that they wanted to have a German sense of identity. They spoke German. They practiced German cultural identity. And the only reason that stopped was the hate-mongering that happened as a result of World War I and certainly World War II. I mean, they volunteered, but they didn't volunteer to stop. In other words, they were persecuted to stop. And the pains that they went through, the discrimination, the stereotypes that they had to endure are very similar to the way Latinos are feeling the presence of politics today in their lives. So I wanted to make that clear because I don't think enough people like realize what their grandparents went through. There's the famous, my grandpa did it legally, or my grandparents waited in line, why couldn't yours? They really don't know. They don't know how their grandparents came or what their great-grandparents went through. And I think I wanted to expose that in a sense to, again, release the humanity of what happened in the layers of the past and how they can be used as a way to connect to today's contemporary experience. And so do you think that, I didn't know what the right word was here, I was like, do we sanitize history? Do we forget it? Do yeah. we alter it? Why don't we know this history? Right. Because it really helps make the argument that Indiana is not a destination for Latinos or it shouldn't be a place where Latinos can call home when we alter. Again, I don't know what the right word is, and I'm not sure what you think what might be the right word, altering, forgetting, sanitizing. sanitizing. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great way of thinking about it, right? When you clean a house, you spray it with a little bit of bleach that's saying mm -hmm. wipe it down. And I feel like that's what has happened to some extent with people's own immigrant history. You know, if you think about it, a lot of folks that are in Indiana today are the great grandkids or the grandkids of immigrants themselves. And as such, they only know stories, tales, maybe twice told, completely released from the actual experience. And we know as Latinas that even our parents hide us from certain truths. They don't want to tell us what they go through. They don't want to tell us the rawness of the pain that they face every day. They shield us from that because they want us to have a better life and not have to be burdened with the emotional trauma of it. So if that happens with us, I know that happened with the Germans earlier. A lot of the ugly stories, a lot of the pain, and even a lot of the resistance. That's what I love the most is the resistance stories of Germans who were like, we're going to practice our faith. We're going to practice our language. Those get sanitized, they get minimized, especially if your goal is to prove that you are American through and through, that you got here the right way, that you're better than those Latinos, quote unquote, that aren't doing it the right way. If that's your goal, you're going to go back and look at your history through skewed lens. You're going to have blinders on that are going to not let you see the parallels so that you can justify feeling better than the other community. And I think that's what's happened. And it happens in every state. It's not just Indiana. But it certainly is, is uh, it's more than a shame. But that's the word that comes to mind. Because there's so much more that can unite these communities. And so do you see Latinos in Indiana or, again, greater Lafayette area following a similar path towards assimilation? 
That's a hard one because it depends on how one to define assimilation, right? When I was a grad student, there was a theorist and anthropologist, Renato Rosaldo, who made the claim that assimilation could also be considered as acculturation, which is acculturating a new culture, like adopting a new culture. And then he made the claim that actually what we see happening is deculturation. In other words, you have to de-emphasize a previous culture to be able to adopt a new one. And unless you de-emphasize, you're not accepted in the new one. And Rosaldo had issues with that, as do I, right? You and I speak English, right? <laughs> well, we have children who probably speak English. We've been educated. I've intermarried. If we follow the sociological, sociological. assumptions, <laughs> do I consider myself assimilated? Absolutely not. Because to me, assimilation means losing, severing, or being ashamed of the past. And I never want that for me or my children or my great-grandchildren. I am okay adopting. And you know what? The majority of Latinos are too. We're adopting and adapting into the land that we're in. And in Indiana, that means, what does that mean? That means buying long underwear. (laughs) (laughs) That means settling in for a winter because you know you're not going to go out or not having a garden. You're adapting to new environment. That is absolutely what happens in every generation. I think the difference is that you can adapt without feeling shame for the previous. And unfortunately, that's happened too often, where we tell immigrants and their children that they have to adapt slash assimilate and forget. It's that second part that I have an issue with. So I think a lot of folks that I know, families that I still keep in touch with, grandchildren now of the original settlers, we can say, the original inhabitants of Latino Lafayette. Their children are being raised in the U.S. They're Hoosiers. They're being raised in Indiana. Some are teaching their grandchildren to speak Spanish, and that's wonderful. They're bilingual. What a wonderful talent. It's not a negative. It's a talent. But that doesn't mean that they're, like, ashamed of being from Indiana either. You know, they're both and. They're both from Indiana but also have Mexican heritage. For those that can't afford and have the visas and the passport to do so, they make an effort to go back to Mexico or expose their grandchildren to that richness of their culture because they don't want them to forget. That's part of what I see happening. I love that. I think it's just something I struggle with, too. I think when I think of how people perceive me, they probably perceive me as highly assimilated. But I reject that label yeah. because I identify strongly as a Latina. Right. I'm bilingual. Yeah. It means Thanksgiving is turkey and tamales. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so I mean, it's it a benefit. Is, There's no right. cost, really. And the cost becomes when somebody else rejects it, when somebody else is afraid of your culture, of your community, of your language, and fears it. But that's their problem. And honestly, I think that some European Americans do that, too. I mean, why do we have so many DNA tests going on in this country right now? You know, 23andMe's and the other testing agencies are gaining so much money because folks are hungry to find out about their heritage and their ancestry. They want to know. And again, it's about not being ashamed of that, but being able to celebrate it. And it's interesting, going back to sanitizing history, So I always tell my students, especially with the German connection, I say, okay, tell us what you eat on 4th of July, the quintessential American holiday. So 
Sylvia, what do you eat for 4th of July? Like, what is the typical American eat? Hamburgers, hot dogs. German. Both. <laughs> Both. Hamburgers and hot dogs are quintessential American food. And now French fries, also mm. French right now. <laughs> I eat carne asada. Carne but... <laughs> asada, exactly. <laughs> We've never asked people to completely assimilate. If we did that, then we would be speaking English with an English accent. We've always learned to navigate and adapt and use words. We speak German daily. We don't realize that. But the word kindergarten is not English. If we're able to celebrate that, that changes the dynamic. For me, the most frustrating part is when people are like digging their heels saying that, no, we can't accept other cultures or other languages. It's damaging our society. And I think, no, you're damaging our society. Your attitude is what's damaging our society. And, you know, and it comes out in your book that the Latino community seems particularly subjected to this notion that they cannot assimilate. Exactly. The Latino, or they will not. Or they, they refuse. refuse. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, in Arizona, we recently had somebody mention that the black community can't assimilate. And it's like, why? Why? Why must we constantly build up more walls? Or if we lived in Michigan, obviously the Muslim community would be a target to this as well, right? I don't get it. I don't understand why there's such antagonism and hatred. That would make me feel sorry for them in terms of what they carry around in their heart every day. But I can't feel sorry for them because they're running the country to some extent. I feel like I need to fight against that. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Suhei Vega of Arizona State University's School of Transborder Studies and Religious Studies. She's speaking with Sylvia Martinez of IU Bloomington's Latino Studies program. Suhei Vega is also the author of Latino Heartland of Borders and Belonging in the Midwest. Were there any surprises in findings in this project? Yeah, so let's see, there's a few, but I can think of one was, um, what's important to recognize is I interviewed white members as well as Latino members of the community. And up until this point, there hadn't been a lot of that, although there was. There's been here and there some evidence of that. But typically when you do an ethnography of a community, you interview that one ethnic community, let's say. But I try to bring in conversations and interviews with white members of the community as well. Some of those were interesting and eye-opening. Some of them were frightening, quite honestly. I felt like at one point somebody might reach over and attack me physically. I wasn't saying anything. <laughs> I actually purposely did not vocalize opposition to this person. I tried to make them feel as comfortable as they could so they can feel free to vocalize because my point as a researcher is to understand them, even if I disagree with them. But this individual was quite um, upsetting for me as an interviewer. And then there was folks that kind of didn't understand the immigration debate. They didn't understand how complicated it was. They felt that you can just wait in a line like the DMV. And some folks that clearly were listening to particular radio or TV personalities that would just kind of restate what they heard without actually recognizing the complexities. 
So there was one individual that did this, and I just listened and and appreciated their participation because they were research participants, and I respected that they were willing to give me their time to explain their position. Well, when I did one of the follow-up interviews, I followed up with them, and I interviewed them, and I asked, you know, back a couple years ago, you mentioned this. I wondered what your opinion was. Is that something you're still feeling? I want to make sure I'm still accurate as to what you said. And she goes, oh, no, I've changed. And what she said made me think a lot about what does it take to change people's minds. She said that it wasn't news. It wasn't a politician. It wasn't me or her children telling her she was wrong. It was having a neighbor move in to her neighborhood that was Latino. And that neighbor was outside tending to her flowers. And this individual also likes garden. So they were outside together. And even though the neighbor didn't speak English very well, they had something in common all of a sudden. And they could connect. And they said hi to each other in the mornings and in the evenings. And that made this participant in my study, in a sense, rethink some of what she had thought. Because now she had somebody that she had gotten to know, a human being that was experiencing possibly what she had heard about on the news and from politicians. So then the next time that the DACA, this was before DACA, when DACA was still being argued about, when DACA students were on the news and it was argued, will we sign this? She listened in a different intentional way so that she listened to understand, not to judge their circumstance. And that made her shift completely. I was beside myself with, wow, that's amazing. Not everybody's opinion changes like that, certainly. But I think that we have to find those moments where humanity intersects, where people connect with each other. And like Gloria Saldua, they can navigate those worlds together rather than being constantly clashing with each other. I wanted to do entrepreneurship and businesses and economic impacts and looking at the geography of the town. And I remember distinctly an interview when I asked them, what grocery store do you attend? And I was trying to get at the mental mapping of their life, like trying to map out where they go every day. You know, what grocery store? Where do you buy your farm? You know, what pharmacy to use, et cetera. And they just stopped me mid-interview and said, why do you care? And I, you know, I had to explain my research. (laughs) And the midst of trying to explain it, the participant said, you know, right now my life is more concerned about what's going on in Washington. It doesn't matter where I go shopping. And that was a huge moment in my research because I had to stop and think, what is it that's important to them? And what was important to them is how D.C., Washington sees them, how politicians see them, and how their neighbors see them because their neighbors vote in the politicians that vote in these laws. So that's when I said, I need to go talk to people that aren't Latino and see what is it they're really feeling and why. And like, what's the source? Is it the news? Why? To understand it? Yeah. So that was my goal is to get a sense for not just what Latinos themselves feel, but then how do non-Latino Hoosiers, how are they responding to the community to teach us then where do we go from here? And the story you just shared you experience several times, right? So non-Latino participants often express pretty strong anti-immigrant sentiment. So 
How did you manage those feelings throughout the research process? I mean, did you have a a journal that accompanied your field notes? I'm just kind of yeah, curious. A, like from a process perspective, mm-hmm. yeah. No, it was emotional, and I did have a journal. Um, as a field researcher, and I tell students this all the time, and it's hard for them in this technology world to think about that they need to write everything down. Now I tell them they need to use voice memo on the phone and just voice it out, but do something to document everything. But I do remember after one of those interviews, I came home and just collapsed on the couch and felt dirty. Like I felt dirty, not just because of what was being said to me, but because as a researcher, I didn't correct them. And as an activist, I felt like I should have corrected them. But as a researcher, I needed to understand what they were thinking. And for many folks, there was nothing I could have said that would have changed their mind. But understanding what they're thinking helps me really analyze how did people get here? And then again, how do we get to a better place? But that means that I had to absorb a lot of pretty unhealthy conversations. Now, because I was a student, I was a researcher, and I was somewhat affiliate to Purdue, which is right there, I had this really weird betwixt and between kind of experience because I was a researcher and they were happy to help a researcher or I think also um, maybe felt a little, not proud, but they felt a little like finally someone's listening to us, right? And I was a student and even though I feel like I read Latina, like I, and I want to read Latina, I never mm-hmm. want to pass. I think that there was this weird sense of, well, she's a student so I can, you know, and especially for older folks, she's a student. Oh, well, you know, I'm just going to say what I need to say. And I also don't doubt that some folks did censor themselves a bit, right? And I know that to be the case with some interviews. I, I talked to some individuals, and I felt like they censored some of what they said. And in those situations, I just try to make them feel comfortable, but that didn't make me feel comfortable. And so I would go home feeling exhausted emotionally, just uh, guilty for not standing up and telling them they're wrong. And then it didn't just happen at that moment, though. Later, as I'm revising, as I'm writing paragraphs, as I'm listening to the interviews so that I can transcribe, it's a constant, like, uh, and I wouldn't call it trauma because I feel like that's too bombastic, but it's like a researcher's dilemma, right, that you have to constantly relive even some really negative experiences to be able to analyze and then unpack them. And so it's still something that carries me. And when I talk about it, especially with younger generation ethnographers, they're like, well, why didn't you say anything? And, and I get it. Believe me, I've had those doubts. But I also feel like there's something to be said about also respecting the research and trying to understand people's perspectives, even if you don't agree with them. You call yourself an activist researcher or someone with an activist research agenda. So what does this mean? I mean, you already presented the challenge with not speaking up, right, Right. when someone's saying something you don't agree with. But did it pose other challenges, or how did you manage that tension? I think it depends on the moment. Right now, I currently work with uh, religious communities that I don't agree with either, right? (laughs) Like, I'm not of their faith, and I may disagree with some of their perspectives. But I respect the right to have those perspectives, My role as an activist researcher or research activist is that I don't publish, I don't go to conferences, I don't visit universities like here for the prestige, 
Of course, it's prestigious. I'm completely honored to be here at IU, but I'm not doing this for the prestige alone. I don't want to be the quote-unquote expert. I don't want to be the the knower all of community. I don't want to own community. A lot of ethnographers used to say, my research, my people, and it's just annoying. You don't own anyone. So my goal in being an activist researcher is that to do something with that work, right? So that means that if like a radio program needs a commentator on an event that happened, I'll be the first one to say, yes, I'll make time for it. If a student organization needs a faculty member to be there to have some sort of backing that they're not alone, I'll be there. I'll try to be there as much as I can. When voters need to get to the poll and I am not teaching that day, I will get in my car and do that. And it's not that I can do it all. We can't do it all. But I make a point to not define myself only as a faculty member and only as a researcher. I'm defined by all these other things that I do to happen to facilitate a more just society. But I'm not going to just sit, publish, and be carried around as this quote-unquote expert that does nothing with that. And so the presumption may also be that as a Latina, gaining access to your community was easy. You say that's accurate, (laughs) inaccurate, because I know you worked as a high school liaison. Is that how you gained access or did that come after? So that came really as my research activist. That came as my own saying that I need to do something back. I can't just take I can't just take people's narratives. We call it helicopter anthropology. We just zoom in, take and then zoom out. Or culture vulture, too, is another Mm -hmm. lovely phrase. I wanted to make sure I did something. And so I started talking to somebody at the schools, and they said, well, we really need a person to be able to advocate for the students, translate for the parents, help students get financial aid. And they said, why don't you do it? So I said, okay. (laughs) And so I did that. I actually purposely did not get interviews from that experience. I might have had like one or two families that overlapped only because the children have to be going there. But I purposely did not recruit from the school because I didn't feel like children, high school students, or even parents that relied on me for translation should have to feel guilted into participating in this project. So I didn't use that as a space. But again, that doesn't mean there was some overlap, right? There are some people that I knew from research that happened to be in the school or worked at the school. In terms of access, so obviously I speak Spanish and that helps. My parents are from Mexico and that helps. I can talk and reference Mm -hmm. that. I could speak Spanish and be Mexican and present myself as a pompous, arrogant researcher and no one's gonna talk to me. You know, I think that rapport matters. If people trust that you're authentic, that matters. So certainly there were some things that were easier. I had a student one time that wanted to do a PhD in Iowa. This is in Arizona, amongst meatpacking industry workers. And she didn't speak any Spanish. And she didn't want to learn. And I said, well, then you're kind of making it impossible. (laughs) You know, you've got to reach them halfway. You've got to show authenticity and have trust to be able to build a rapport and have people be willing to tell their stories and, like, share something with you. People might think it's a lot easier, but I think that's just surface level. There's so much more that goes into doing research right. I think I'll end with asking how you hope your book has an impact, whether it's 
policy or maybe who do you want reading your book? So I think it's, there's two points. One point is that I really want the youth. I've been talking to a lot of students here at IU. I want youth to recognize their stories as valid and see themselves in the voices that I've presented in the book and to hopefully collect their own narratives, collect their own stories. And then two, I really do hope that community leaders, whether it's mayors or council members or even folks in Indy, might read this and really think about the repercussions of their actions in a different way and want to, instead of building walls, build bridges, which is trite, but to build understanding and to try to really reach across and engage what does it mean to be a community rather than create walls and barriers and antagonism. So yeah, I do hope that some leaders do read it, maybe feel inspired by it, maybe share it with family. I've had folks give it to their parents and that's been fun and parents actually really receive it. They might have thought one way or another, but seeing it in paper made them really understand what the experience might be like for somebody. Thank you once again so much for being part of Profiles. This has been great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Suhey Vega, faculty member in the School of Transborder Studies and Religious Studies at Arizona State University and the author of Latino Heartland, of Borders and Belonging in the Midwest. She's been speaking with Sylvia Martinez, Associate Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies and Latino Studies at IU Bloomington. Suhe Vega was recently on campus as a guest of the Global Arts and Humanities Festival Mexico Remixed, sponsored by Indiana University's Arts and Humanities Council. You've been listening to Profiles. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.